Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Good morning, everyone. You need to uh, keep me in your prayers. I know many of you have had, you, you've come up to me during, uh, during worship and greeting and just saying, hey, I'm praying for you, Pastor. My, my voice is a little off. It sounds, my wife actually says this is my sexy voice. Whenever I'm sick, uh, she enjoys it. So I'm like, bring it on, bring it on, bring on the sickness. No, uh, she says this is her favorite preacher's voice when I'm sick. So I'm like, so like the other, you know, 340 days out of the year, that's not your favorite. She's like, uh. Uh, no, but, but keeping your prayers, I, I made the joke earlier that this is my, uh, my getting ready for Halloween voice. Like I'm going to scare a bunch of kids this year in the name of Jesus when we have our, our Halloween trunk or treat, which is a perfect segue into the one announcement I want to make this morning before we hop into the word of the Lord. Um, so really quick, we, we, we take serious this, this opportunity to, to leverage every opportunity God gives us for the kingdom. Uh, there is a, a, a common misconception in Christian culture that we are called to run away from certain things that are not of the Lord. And, and I'm here to tell you this morning that we don't run. We don't run. We reclaim everything for the Lord Jesus, that everything belongs to him. If everything, every darkness and principality submits to the name and to the feet of Jesus, that means as the body of Christ, we are tasked to do the same. So we don't run from things like Halloween. And if that's not your thing, it's, it's, it's fine. It's not my thing particularly anyway. Uh, but one thing that we do take serious is that we have hundreds of kids and families and the individuals that God has called us to reach as a community stepping foot on this campus this Halloween. We've been doing this community outreach for the last three, four years, and it has been incredibly successful, perhaps one of the greatest events that we do as a church. And, and, and let me just ask you this, if, even if it's not your thing, can I ask you to hitch your wagon to what the Lord is doing through this church? I believe it is the mission that he's given all of us. The biggest need that we have is uh, people to, to celebrate, to, to do uh, trunk or treats, you know, to set up your, your, your trunk in a certain theme or, or a costume or whatnot and, and get the kids ready. So uh, my, my big ask this morning is that you would join me in loving and extending belonging to the community right behind us. Amen? All right, all right. Hey, let's jump into the word this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six. We're gonna be jumping around in different passages this morning, but that's gonna be our main text, Ephesians chapter six. How many of you know who Muhammad Ali is? Any, any, any boxing fans? Yeah, come on, I love boxing, yes, yes. Uh, I grew up boxing, I'm, I'm uh, Mexican, uh, so my family and I, we grew up watching Cesar Chavez and, and Oscar de la Hoya, like these were, these were the guys. We used to grow up watching this, we were not the, the most well-off family, so one thing that we would do is, is my family would buy us like one pair of boxing gloves. I don't know if they thought if they bought us both pairs, we'd like break each other's noses, but they bought us one pair of boxing gloves, and um, so what we would do is, I'm lefty, so I got the left glove, and my cousin was a righty, and he got the right glove, and we would just throw haymakers all day. That's all we would ever do. We were big into boxing. Last night, one of our very own members of this church, Johnny Marigo, had an incredible fight. It was his, uh, I believe, his sixth or seventh professional fight, and it ended in a draw. Super, super disappointed, but super excited for him. I mean, this, this guy... He's a Brazilian-born jiu-jitsu artist. Now I'm getting into too much detail. I, I actually talked to Pastor Justin about wanting to interview him for the congregation to just celebrate the, the amount of talent that God has brought to this church. His name is Johnny, and his fighter, like, you know, every fighter has this, this nickname. His nickname is Soldier of Christ. 
And he walks out with the Christian flag and he, he comes out to, our God is an awesome God, he reigns. And he's just like coming out and he's just like giving so much glory to God and he falls to his knees and he prays and he gets up and he, and he walks with so much integrity, so much humility. And even though he ended last night in a draw, he was the champion. And I love this guy, I love this guy. But back to Muhammad Ali. The one who would, is known to say, I'm the greatest, right? Like if you ever listen to old, I actually went back when I was uh, preparing for this message, looking up old Muhammad Ali clips. What that has to do with Ephesians 6, I don't know, but I was doing it. <laughs> but Muhammad Ali would say, I fly like a butterfly, or I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee, right? Like you, you can just hear the things that he would say. There's a couple phrases that I love. He's, he would say, I am the greatest, and that was actually his nickname, Muhammad, I am the greatest Ali, right? Or Cassius, I am the greatest uh, Clay. The other thing that he would say is this. I love it. He's like, if you ever dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> he was a great champion fighter, but he was also a great champion with trash talk. He also would say this. I love it. He says, I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast. I can't possibly be beat. And needless to say, Muhammad Ali had some strong views of his own fighting ability, but he also backed it up. Right, on one time on a, on a flight from New York to Los Angeles, this was right after he won the gold medal in the 1960 uh, Olympic for the heavyweight title. It says that, uh, legend tells us that he was boarding a plane and he was getting there in typical Muhammad Ali fashion, was entertaining everybody around him, saying those typical words and, and phrases that he had and making everybody laugh and everybody was enjoying their time together and the, the flight attendant, a little frustrated, says, all right, champ, it's time to, to take your seat. It's time to sit down and, and buckle up your seatbelt. And, and Muhammad Ali, in his typical fashion, says this, woman, don't you know Superman doesn't need a seatbelt? <laughs> and the flight attendant, semi-frustrated, but quickly retorts, she says this, yeah, but I also know Superman doesn't need no airplane, so sit down and buckle up. One of the worst things we could ever do is overestimate our own ability. One of the worst things we could ever do is overestimate our own ability. Friend, you may feel strong or sometimes feel invincible. You may feel like I am the greatest, right? But, but I can humbly say to you this morning that you are not as strong, not as invincible, not as permanent as you think you are. In fact, Scripture teaches us clearly the finite nature of our existence. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. The apostle Peter is quoting Scripture, and he says, As the Scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. In James chapter 4, verse 14, it likens the existence or the permanency of man to fog. Look what it says. How do you know? He's, he's speaking to people that are saying, you know, next year I'll invest in this and I'll, 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 I'll purchase that plot of land and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll see a return in dividends on this. I'll see an ROI on this. And he's people that are just thinking that long term. And, he, and James 4 tries to bring some perspective. And he says this, how do you know what your life is going to be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Now, I don't believe 
the Bible is, is trying to belittle the importance of our existence. Nowhere in scripture does it diminish the value of being individuals who have been created in the image of God. So I don't want us to read passages like this and, and have an existential crisis and say there is no purpose to my existence. All the word of God is trying to do in this moment is to remind us that you and I, friends, are finite We don't exist in the way that we see here forever. And if that is the case physically, isn't that also the case spiritually? Don't we need more than what we just see here? One thing that I I oftentimes do, my wife says that I go through a lot of phases in life. Sometimes I'll I'll go through a a phase where I want to join a bowling league, or sometimes I'll I'll go through a phase of, I think my current one is golf, and all I do is read, study, and and just look up YouTube videos and techniques, and golf is probably the hardest phase I've ever taken on. Another phase that I went through was was survival, and I was watching survival videos and reading tons of survival books and, and all these different things. Like I grew up on the south side of Chicago, didn't know how to tie a knot, right, unless it was on my shoelaces. And uh, so I I was like fascinated by survival in the wilderness. The moment I moved to Springfield, Missouri to attend college where there was nothing but caverns and caves, I'm like, I'm going to learn survival. So I got onto this, what my wife now calls phase of survival. And and, uh, the cool thing is is that my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, is a great encourager of my phases. She always, I don't know what it is, but she loves to encourage my phases. And one year when I was going through the survival phase, she bought me a Bear Grylls utility knife. And it was the best gift I ever had. I'm not even kidding. I I was like more excited than the kids on Christmas morning. I opened it up and I fell to my knees and I was like, yes, super excited because that Bear Grylls survival knife came with its own sheath and it had its own flint stick that you can strike if you were in a crisis for flames, right? And and it also had a whistle in case you needed it, right? Uh, I'm I'm talking about this now and I'm like, this is really lame, but I loved it at the time. Inside of the sheath, it had some instruction manuals on, on survival techniques and how to, how to get, uh, draw the attention of, of, of sea crafts and aircrafts. And, and it was just an incredible, incredible tool and weapon. Um, so I remember getting this, and inside of it had the rules of three, the survival guide's rule of three. And it told me this, something that we oftentimes forget, but it says this. The rules of three, according to Bear Grylls, that you cannot survive more than three minutes without oxygen, right? Now, now don't test this, right? Please don't test this, especially at church until you sign a non or a release form, right? Uh, but, but yeah, you cannot exist for more. The average person cannot exist for more than three minutes without oxygen. It also tells us in the rules of three that you cannot survive more than three hours in harsh conditions. You cannot survive more than three hours unprepared in extreme heat or extreme cold. Physically, we cannot survive more than three days without water. It also says that we cannot survive more than three weeks without food. Now, we can give it, it's just an estimate, an average here, but, but by and large, what this is, is trying to tell us and what I'm trying to extrapolate from all of this this morning is this, friends. If this is the case for our physical survival, if we sometimes are guilty of overestimating ourselves physically, The fact that we are so dependent on an environment outside of ourselves and out of our control, I would submit to you this morning that that is the same case for us spiritually. If physically I am so dependent on things that are out of my control, then I'm going to say if I'm going to be successful spiritually, there are things that are out of my control that I need to be dependent on. There is a 
higher power that I need to be dependent on, something that is outside of my control in order to succeed spiritually. You may feel strong, but spiritually, friends, this is what I'm talking about. You alone are no match for the enemy of your soul. Now, I'm not trying to be an alarmist this morning. My, my hope is not to walk us out of here with fear and trepidation. That's, that's never my goal. I want us to walk out excited and pumped up because Jesus, always we should feel excited and pumped up. But, but the reality is this. When we think of the spiritual realm, when we think of our spiritual survival, friend, you alone are no match for the enemy of your soul. It, it's, it's, it's humiliating. But you and I are no match alone for the enemy of our soul. We need another. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. This is why Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, stay alert. If that's the case, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We are in a series called The Armor of God, and we're spending our time in Ephesians chapter 6. We've spent time last year looking at every single one of those chapters, and when we got to this portion of Scripture, I said, let's pause here, and I promise in the next year, 2018, we're going to do all of our time to spend in in this passage alone. And we saw last week, I'm not going to summarize it completely, but we saw last week Ephesians 1 through 3, it's six chapters in the the book of Ephesians, the letter to the, uh, the Ephesians. Chapters one, two, and three are all about the ways we should be thinking, about our theology, the ways that we should be thinking, our orthodoxy, if you will. And then chapters four, five, and six are all about the ways that we should behave, practical, the uh, uh, orthopraxy, right? So, so we have chapters one, two, and three, the ways we should think, theology. Chapters four, five, and six, the ways we should behave, the ways we should be practicing. And I love that Paul brings a perfect balance to both of them. He's almost telling us in the letter to Ephesians that we cannot be people who only care about theology. We shouldn't be people that only care about the high and lofty arguments and, 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 and the, the arguments and, and, the, and the philosophies of the Christian faith and tradition. We shouldn't be people that only care about that and forsake righteous living. Nor do the scriptures give us the ability to be individuals that only care about living practically and no longer study and learn the deep truths of the faith. We need a balance to both. And I believe God has gifted every single one of us to be stronger in some areas and to encourage others in other areas. But by and large, we cannot say, I don't care about theology. I only care about righteous living. Because here's the thing. It's a good theology that leads to righteous living. And the inverse is true also. You can't be a person that says, I only care about theology And I really don't care about righteous living because you will not inherit the kingdom of God with just sound theology. The Bible says that even the devils know the word of God and shudder. They even know the name of Jesus. They know the truths, the deep biblical theological truths of the word of God, and yet they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we need both, and Paul knows this. And the moment you read chapters one, two, three, four, five, in the beginning part of six, you may feel exhausted because your natural inclination is to say, okay, it's time to get busy. I'm gonna roll up my spiritual sleeves and, and get busy trying to apply all of this to my life. But Paul doesn't tell us that is the next step for us. What does he say? Let's read the passage together. 
he concludes the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy, the theology and the practical living. He concludes it with this. The moment you feel like you're ready to toss in the towel because you're looking up at a mountain of righteousness and says, and you tell yourself, I can never climb alone. He says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Where does our power come from? Where does our might come from? To to adopt good theology and to live to good theology and, and follow good practical Christian living. How do we find the strength to accomplish both of those things? The word of God is clear. It says this, in his mighty strength. In the strength and in the power of the Lord, I am thankful that I serve a God who doesn't just tell me this is how you achieve perfection, but then he comes and he stoops and he gives me the Holy Spirit, the power, and says, this is what will bring you there. He doesn't just tell me where I need to go. He gives me every weapon, every vehicle necessary to take me there. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that this morning that I'm not climbing a mountain with no tools, that God sits back, arms crossed, and says, get up here. He says, let me carry you. Let me lead you. Let me give you everything you need to be successful. And he does so. The passage tells us here clearly, so put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And now he's talking about uh, the demonic uh, hierarchy, if you will, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and, and by the way, I just want to be clear here, it's not the day of evil in the sense of a, a one-time, one-day event, and we're just preparing for this one thing, like maybe it's Fright Fest at, at a, you know, Great of, or Six Flags or something like that. He, he's not talking about a one-day thing. I've got some post-traumatic stress disorder from that. Um, it's not a one day of evil. It's the day of evil was a, a generic term to talk about the, the moment of evil that arises, the time that you face temptation, the time where you see the enemy snarling, not physically, hopefully, or, or literally, but, but, but figuratively speaking in the corner, right? He says this, so that, that way, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. We're gonna spend some time in the next coming weeks looking at every piece of armor. This week we're gonna spend time looking at the belt of truth, but one thing I want, a couple things I want us to note from this passage is, is, is that the Bible tells us first and foremost that we are in a war not against people, but against other dark spiritual forces. Listen, the enemy would love to have you target individuals that are not the enemy. You may have a boss who is bothering you. You may have a coworker or a relative or someone living in your very own home, a next door neighbor, and you have so much pent up anger and rage and disenfranchisement with that person or that particular establishment. But the word tells us that our warfare, our War is not against those individuals or that particular individual, but against something deeper, the one who is placating on that individual's emotions, their insecurities. And the greatest thing that we can do in the spiritual realm is take a step back, empathize, and understand that that person is being led 
to do things, say things, behave in certain ways because of the one who is fighting for their soul. Imagine the power that you regain when you remember that that boss or that situation is only there because there is an enemy who is trying to make them live out those insecurities, to live out that rage, to live out that anger, to live out that lust. And, and, and the best thing that we can do is pray for that individual when we realize that they are also being attacked. We regain power when we know who our enemy is. In fact, I would say this. When you target the wrong people, you are killing casualties, not enemies. When we look at people as our enemy, we are targeting casualties, not the enemy. So we have to take a step back and understand that there is a spiritual battle taking place, that the enemy is prowling around, that he is roaring and seeking whom he could devour. The second thing I want us to be super clear about in our circles oftentimes, and, uh, and, what, and what I want to just be clear about, I, I, I'm raised in the Pentecostal tradition I, I adhere to Pentecostal theology, but oftentimes what happens with Pentecostals is that they are a little, a little kooky and a little wacky. I'll just be honest, okay? Um, just from someone who's on the inside, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones from the outside. I'm poking holes from the inside, trying to rebuild some walls, right? I'm, I, I purchased the house and I'm trying to refurbish. It's a, it's a flip, right? I'm, uh, when, when, when I look at Pentecostal theology, sometimes I see a lot of individuals who turn demons into everything. They tripped over a crack in the cement. There was a demon in that cement. I'm like, no, man, there was just, that's just water damage. Come on, all right? And, and that oftentimes is, is the tendency. And, and what they will do oftentimes is, is and what we will do is oftentimes is, is that we will fight the devil, right? And they'll just be speaking to the devil and speaking to the devil. Listen, in your spiritual warfare, if you're talking to the devil more than you're talking to Jesus, you've already set yourself up for disaster. You need to be talking to Jesus, he is our only authority. He is our only power. And your screams at the devil will never come clear, will never even come close to the significance of the cross. So our spiritual warfare, we don't attack the devil. We defend against the devil. We don't need to attack that which has already been defeated. The cross has defeated Satan. Scripture is clear. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. We don't earn it, we don't fight for it, we don't scream for it, we don't scream in tongues for it. He gives us the victory, not by our doing, but through Jesus Christ. Colossians says it even clearer in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says this, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, by doing that, by making us right with God, it says in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Again, that is pointing back to Ephesians 6. It's talking about the darkness, the principalities of darkness there. It is, it is the, the dark spiritual realm when it says the spiritual rulers and authorities. Jesus, it says this, that Jesus disarmed. You know what that Greek word disarmed means? He lopped their arm off. Literally just like what my kids are doing with Mr. Potato Head, just popping those arms off. Right? In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Listen, normally we don't like someone who is a bragger, right? I mean, we, we love Muhammad Ali because he, 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 can, he can keep up and 
he, he, his, his walk matches his talk. We, we appreciate that. We can't deny him for that. But normally we don't like people that brag. We don't like people that over-celebrate at the end zone every time they score a touchdown. But Jesus, can I just say something? When Jesus scored a touchdown on Satan and won the game, it was like a million to zero. He danced. He danced at that end zone. He threw that down and he publicly shamed them with his victory over them. He said, you thought you won. You haven't seen anything yet. And he just like plowed everybody, plowed everybody and just danced. I don't know if he did the Macarena or what. Maybe he did the YMCA or maybe he did the electric slide. Or maybe he did Orange Justice. If you don't know what that is, you don't play Fortnite. I don't play Fortnite. But Jesus was victorious and is victorious. And our victory comes from him. So can I just say that when we're looking at our spiritual warfare, we take it serious, but only insofar as we understand that Jesus is the one that fights, has fought on our behalf, and has given us the victory. And now all that we do is not attack the enemy, but defend against him. There is only one armor that we see in Ephesians chapter 6 that is uh, offensive in nature. Everything else, five out of the six, are defensive in nature because Jesus is our number one offense. And again, the only way we can stand against the devil is by putting on the full armor of God. Everybody say the full armor of God. The full armor of God. That means there is not one aspect, there is not one piece of equipment that we are asked or can even deem worthy to set aside. There is nothing that we can say we don't need. There is no negotiables. There's no, well, you know what? The breastplate of righteousness doesn't fit that well. I'm gonna take that piece off as long as I got the helmet of salvation, right? Like, like there's none of that. We can't be picky and choosy over the things that we have. He says, put on the full armor of God from head to soul, pun intended, right? The full armor of God. So when we look at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, when we look at the gospel boots of peace, when we look at the shield of faith, the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit in the next coming weeks, It's imperative that you are here because you need every single piece if you are gonna be successful in the defense against the enemy of your soul. We need every piece. So today, let's look at the belt of truth. It says here in Ephesians chapter six, I'm gonna read a few translations for, for you, NIV, ESV, and then the NASB. It's an older translation. The NIV, really quick, for any uh, biblical literacy nerds, I'm gonna tell you really quick. The NIV is more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. The ESV is a more of a word-for-word word translation. And the NASB is a word-for-word word translation, but from an older dialect. So they use older phrases. And I'm gonna read all of them. So first, the NIV. It says this, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Right, okay, the belt of truth. Ephesians 6, 14 says this, ESV, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, same, same thought, but more word for word from the original Greek. And then the NASB, another word for word, but older phrases that would have made more sense in the original Greek than they do now. Stand firm then, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Look to your neighbor and say, gird your loins. Some of you didn't say that, and I'm assuming you have no loins. And some of you are laughing and have no idea what loins are. <laughs> what are loins? Well, culture has made it seem like something else, but loins is 
essentially the midsection, the area that you want to protect. And, and there is something that we need to understand. When, when Paul was writing, he wasn't writing with our modern warfare uh, mindset. He was writing with a first century Jewish mindset who was a citizen of Rome. He was writing from the context of a prison cell in Rome. So he was oftentimes seeing Roman soldiers who were guarding him in his prison cell. And he understood that, that Roman soldiers, whenever they would prepare for battle, would never have their knees covered. If you ever look up what the, the ancient Near East, the men of the first century would wear, they would wear these long robes, these tunics. Now, some people came up to me yesterday, they're like, Pastor, do you think that's ever going to come back in style? And, I, and I'm saying, I pray it doesn't because I don't want to wear a dress. The transition to skinny jeans was hard enough for me. Like, I just, I just I can't do a dress, right? So, so these men, everybody in, in, in the ancient Near East would wear these long robes, these long tunics, but there was something that they were tasked to do whenever partaking in hard labor or warfare, they would have to gird their loins. And how would they gird their loins? Well, that simply means, because if you're you know, trying to go to battle in a long robe or tunic, you're gonna be running like this on the battlefield, right? So what they would do, I'm not doing that again. So if you didn't get a video, you're never gonna see it again. He, they would pick up their tunic and robe up to over their knees. They would grab the, lot, the bottom section, pull it up front, wrap it around their waist, and tie it in the front. Why? Because when you would gird your loins or when you would put on the belt of truth, you are opening yourself up for mobility, a mobility that you previously did not have. Today, unless you're Elvis, an Elvis impersonator, my Hispanic mom, or Batman, when you think of the belt of truth, you think that is a piece of armor that you can keep off. Like if you have an arsenal before you and you see a belt, you're gonna be like, I'm probably gonna go with the AK, right? Like, like, but why does Paul say go for the belt of truth? Why does he say that it is, it is a mandate for us to put on the belt of truth? Because as a belt, a belt has a, as a piece of armor in the first century, it said this, that, that a belt as a piece of armor, it was one thing that held everything together. The belt of truth is what held up the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth is what kept together. There was a sheath on it, and that's where you would put a sword and a dagger. The belt of truth is where a shield would rest when you would see Roman soldiers get really close together to fend off an enemy. The, the belt of truth is what they would use to literally keep them ready for action by girding their loins. The belt of truth was the primary foundational piece of armor. The belt was the primary piece of armor that every good soldier would wear. If they left their belt at home, they left their sword, their dagger, they couldn't hold their equipment, and their dress fell down. So they needed the belt of truth. Friends, the belt of truth for us is a non-negotiable. In the same way the belt was absolutely vital to the Roman soldier's ability to fight, so is the belt of truth important to the survival of the Christian. What do we mean by belt of truth? What do, we, what, do we, we, what do we even mean by truth? We are living in a day and age where truth has many names. Perhaps you've heard it said this way, relativism. Everything is, is relative. Your truth is different than my truth. Your, it, it's really based on what brings you happiness. Whatever makes you happy is truth. So if this lifestyle brings you happiness, then that is truth. Or, or if this lifestyle brings you happiness, and that is truth. But, but here's the thing. We are not the creators of things, and we cannot deem them truth or trustworthy or truthful or not. There is a higher power who has created the, and intended the original purpose for all things. 
So we need to look to him to define what truth is. We do not believe in relativism, which is the belief that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, to society, or historical context. And they are not absolute. We cannot look back in history in 1945 and say that it was true of what Adolf Hitler did to the Jews and to homosexuals and to a vast majority of people groups in Western, Eastern, all all Germany. We cannot say, although he believed it was true, that it was true. So what does that mean? That means truth cannot be defined by your culture, by your society, by the majority of voices. And if that's the case, then there must be something else known as absolute truth. That there are some things that we believe and positions that we should adhere to, not because they're tradition or because we've been beat upside the head with, but because there is a creator who exists and is almighty and all powerful and all holy and all loving. And he has passed on these truths to us. And the better we play according to the rules that he has created, the better the game is for everyone. There is absolute truth. Let me explain what absolute truth is. Moral absolutism says this, the belief that knowledge, truth, or morality exist and do not waver from culture, society, or historical context. That means we can look back in history and say slavery, the idea that people belong to another, has always been bad, has always been wrong. The idea that racism, no matter what a laws were passed in a nation in favor of, have always been wrong, have always been bad. We can look back and say Nazism and, and, and all these different things have always been wrong. That there is a standard of truth that we should be living up to. So if, if truth is something that we can say is an absolute, then what is, why is the belt of truth even necessary? Why do we need this belt of truth? I wanna give you three reasons why we need the belt of truth. The first one is this, that the belt of truth is our first, listen to this, the belt of truth is your first defense against the schemes of the enemy. It is your first defense against the schemes of the devil. We know that the Bible tells us that the devil is a liar. It says that he is the father of what? lies. The devil is a liar. In fact, every single time that we see the devil, now he is a a, a character in the Bible, but I wouldn't say he is a character that is spoken of or even speaks many times in the Bible. He only speaks up three times in the Bible, and every single time the devil speaks, he lies. Somewhere between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't bring this up in the text itself, but we know and and we can posit in other passages that somewhere in between there, the devil who was created to be an angel, an angel of light, some have even postulated that he was a, a worship leader in heaven, fell from his position because he wanted to be equal and or greater than God. He wasn't content with his created purpose, so he looked to God and said, I want something more. Listen, when we're not living in contentment, we're making the same mistake that the enemy has. So he got prideful. And it says that he took a third of the angels with him. And the, and the Lord cast them from heaven and out of the presence of God. And somewhere 
In between Genesis 1 and chapter 3, this happened. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first time the enemy makes his way into the narrative of Scripture. Look what it says here. The first time we see him open his mouth in the garden, chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you have read the narrative beforehand, you know that, that God said you can eat from any tree. You just can't eat from this one tree, right? So already the devil is trying to manipulate and to twist and to lie. And man, he is being wily coyote here. He's like, did, did the devil really say you can't eat from any tree? And, and the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat from fruit. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, some people read that passage and they, it's, they, they say it's an indictment on God's character. Like, why would God ever do that? Listen, you don't understand something. This garden was acres and acres and acres and acres upon acres of beautiful trees with beautiful, tasty, delicious fruit. And yet there was just one tree, one tree that the Lord said, listen, I love you. I'm not trying to tempt you. I don't want you to fail. In fact, I am stacking the odds incredibly in your favor, 99.999 to one in your favor. Just stay away from this one tree. I will not force you to love me and I will not force you to obey me. I will give you free will because I love you and I am not creating you to be my robots. You're my children and I want your love. I will not force it. So I will give you free will to choose to love me and obey me. But don't eat from that tree because it'll separate us. And in fact, you will die. You will experience death. And look what the enemy does. Eve knows this, and it says this. The devil says in verse four, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food, and what does it say? Pleasing to the eye. Not everything that looks good to the eye is good for the heart. Not every relationship that looks good to the heart or looks good on social media is gonna be good for the heart. And yet she fell into that temptation because the enemy was a liar, a thief, a deceiver. Listen, the enemy's not just trying to get you to worship him. The moment he can cause you to stop worshiping Jesus, he's already won. And that's all he needed to do here. Go ahead and taste the fruit. She didn't even care about worshiping me. Just go ahead and taste the fruit. God, God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's trying to get her to compromise. The second time we see him talk was in the counsel of God in Job. The story of Job. Really quick, I just want to read this to you. One day the angels, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, hey Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, oh, just from, I'm just roaming around through the earth, no big deal, going back and forth in it, like really nonchalant, like he's not up to any good. Oh, I'm just, I'm just moseying around like on the corner of 21st and Rock, you know. Um, maybe I stop at Rock and Central, get myself some Chick-fil-A, but I, as soon as I walk in there, I was casted out, so um, I left, right? Like just, just trying to like pass it by, like there's no big deal of him just roaming around. And the Lord knows this. The Lord knows that Satan is trying to tempt people, he is, that he's, he's roaming around seeking whom he can devour. 
And the Lord says to Satan, I know what you're thinking, Job. I know you're trying to tempt people. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, some people have read that passage and they assume that the Lord is offering Job up. Like, like here, mess with his life. And that's not what's happening. The Lord already knows that Satan's going around. He's not just roaming. He's, he's looking for people to devour. And the Lord is trying to put Satan in his place. And he's like, why don't you try this, buddy? Like this guy, I, I will empower him. And I will strengthen him. I've given him everything he needs, right? He, he's a man of God. He's righteous. He says, have you, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, Satan tries to accuse God or blames, God's for, blames God for Job's righteousness. And he says, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You, you've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are, are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So two things that the enemy is doing right now at God. The first thing is that he is falsely accusing him. The enemy falsely accuses you of things. He tries, you, tries to get you to own things that you shouldn't own. Mindsets and perceptions. And, and then look what he says to, to the Lord himself. He says this. Why don't you strike your hand against Job and see if he worships you? Which is completely contrary to the character of God. Listen, God does not strike his righteous. He does not strike his children. He does not beat them and batter them. You may be walking through things right now and feeling like the Lord is beating you up, but God does not beat up his children. Does he discipline? Yes. But don't you dare think that discipline is abuse. He allows things to happen so that he can be there to pick us up. And Satan here is being a liar. The third and final time we see him speak up, is when Jesus is in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. 40 days fasting. In three different occasions, the enemy came directly to Jesus and tried to tempt him. And this is what I want us to spend a little time on. In the wilderness with Jesus, Satan tempts Jesus and tries to distract him from his mission with temporary satisfaction. Look what happens in chapter four, verses two and four. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. So the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So, so he's going to Jesus and knows full well that he is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He can do all things. And he's like, listen, if you're the son of God. Go to him and, and, and show us and prove it to me by turning this, these rocks into bread and just, just eat if you're hungry. What is he trying to do? Jesus is fasting for 40 days. He went out there led by the Holy Spirit to fast, to essentially do what the children of Israel could not do when they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was perfecting that in the wilderness now for 40 days. And the enemy is trying to throw him off mission by ending just short of the finish line on day 39, saying, go ahead and just it's all right, it's no big deal. You're the son of God. You can turn rocks into bread. He's a liar, friends. He's a deceiver. And then Jesus. How does Jesus, the one who is all-powerful, the one with just a word can like 
cause Satan to turn into a bunch of mice and scatter the one who could just like cast a demon out of someone into a pig and drown itself in a, like that happened. It was a crazy story. With just the word, he can do anything. But how does Jesus, how does he choose to come, like to, to, to go to warfare with the devil? How does he defend against the enemy? With truth. Look what he says. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting truth. Man, it's time we tell the enemy when he brings up lies about who we are, when he brings up insecurities, when he brings up things that we know we shouldn't be thinking, talking, or acting upon, that we bring truth at them and say, this is the belt that I wear that holds everything together. It is the foundation for who I am as a person. It doesn't shift with the opinions of people or the sways of culture. This is a foundation, and it is the Word of God. It does not change. It does not transform. It does not bend. It does not cave. And it doesn't mean I got to be a jerk about it either. But I can stand on this as my defense. And Jesus does that beautifully. It happens again. Satan comes to him a second time. He says, if you are the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down? He, he, he brought him to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, the holiest of holies, the holiest place in the entire world. And he brings him to the top of this temple and he says, if you're really the son of God, why don't you just jump right off? Because here's what Satan does. He will quote scripture out of context. He says this, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting, I believe it's Psalm 119 there. He is quoting scripture out of context at Jesus. And yet Jesus retorts with the scripture that is in context. And he says this, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We don't test God. We trust God. We don't test him. We trust him. Satan was like, all right, you won this battle. A third time. Some say that this is the last day of the fast when Jesus is at his very weakest. Like, listen, don't, Sometimes we, we, we identify with the divinity of, of Christ. We, we understand that he's fully God, that he did all these miracles, so we sometimes diminish his, his human nature. Listen, he was hungry. Like Jesus was dreaming about some Carl's Jr. on day 40. That's for Chris Basildua. But on day 40, again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor and Satan said this, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, I know you're on a mission right now and I know you're, you're probably hungry, but we don't have to be hungry any longer. Listen, why, why would God let you suffer like this? What, what kind of God would let you suffer like this and go through the things you're doing? Why don't you just give up and I, I'll, I'll give you a shortcut. Like if, if you would just bend your knee right now and worship me, I'll give you all these, these nations. I'll give you everything you've ever wanted, all the power you'll ever want. And yet Jesus understood something. He didn't come for power. He came to make him, us, his privileged sons and daughters. 
he forsake everything. He set aside everything so that he can make us everything to the Father. And Jesus, not budging from the mission, looks at the enemy and says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus overcame every temptation, every attack of the enemy by leveraging and utilizing the belt of truth. If that is the case for Jesus, how much more important is it for me? Someone who is not divine, you and I, to leverage the belt of truth in our lives. When the enemy is yelling doubts and worries and anxieties, or we bring and recite truth back to him and say, no, this is what the word tells me. This is what the truth is. These are what the facts say, that Jesus is victorious and that you've already been defeated. So friends, I want you to know that the belt of truth is our first defense against the attacks of the enemy. The belt of truth gives us freedom to move. We don't have to be individuals that sway with culture and sway with society and the loudest voices and given to this and given to that. We can allow ourselves to be people who stay firmly rooted in what is right when we utilize the belt of truth. And, and the big thing I want to hit today is that the belt of truth is not just a belt. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. Look at your neighbor and say, truth is a person. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus. In John's gospel, listen, there's one thing I want us to understand, that truth is not just an adoption of sound ethical arguments or a perfect philosophy. When we just adopt good philosophy and sound ethical arguments, this leads us to moralism. We're, all, we're always just trying to do what's moral, what, what's ethical. And living that way proves itself to be exhausting and ultimately leads to legalism. However, when we learn that truth is a person and a relationship, it leads to freedom and enjoyment. Some of you right now have been exhausted following Jesus because you think it's all about a bunch of rules and yeses and nos and this and that and do's and don'ts. But I'm here to tell you that there is a relationship that comes before any rules. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That while we were still enemies of God, he came to us. I'm here to tell you this morning that truth is not just a bunch of words that we find in a text that has proven the test of time. Truth is a person, and it's Jesus. And he invites us into relationship with him. This morning, if you feel that truth is hard and it's difficult, I want to tell you that Jesus promises us that his, his burden is light and his yoke is easy. That he says, come to me, all of you who are worried and heavy burdened and downtrodden, all of you who are thirsty and hungry, and I will be your satisfaction. I will, I will cause you to drink and be thirsty no more. You drink of me and you won't thirst again. 
you eat of me and you shall never be hungry again. Truth is a person. And my prayer is that you would know that person like you've never known him before. If you've been serving him for what feels like your whole life, or maybe you're on the fence this morning, my prayer, friend, is that you would make the decision to turn from falsehood, to turn from the lies, to turn from the deceptions of the enemy, the things that he whispers when you're up at night, and instead, put on the belt of truth. Will you stand with me this morning as we conclude in prayer? As Jesus was marking his way to the cross, he was eating with his disciples and teaching them and serving them and washing their feet and teaching them even more. And there came a point where he told them explicitly, I'm going to leave you, but don't worry, where I'm going, you can't go now, but I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm going to heaven and I will come back and I will bring you to me. And Philip, a very inquisitive apostle, looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Like, we, we've never been there. Like, we're not talking about, like, going from the Shire to Mordor. We've never, we don't know what you're doing. And Jesus replies, he's like, Philip, you do know. If you know me, you know how to come to me. And Jesus says these words that I believe echo through all eternity and should reverberate, reverberate in our hearts this morning. He says this, Jesus answered, I am the way. Read this with me. Jesus answered, I am the way and the, and the, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him and have, or you do know him and have seen him. Listen, the belt of truth is not just a weapon or a piece of armor, it is Jesus. He is the truth. We don't just adopt a philosophy, we join a relationship. And he leads us and guides us into all truth. Let me just pray a prayer of blessing over all of us this morning. Father, thank you so much that this belt of truth is not just something that we put on and take off. It's it's something that you desire for us to live in the same way that you wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. You said, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, throw it off and instead let the Spirit renew your thoughts and renew your attitudes. Put on your new selves, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy, and stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. We are all parts of the same body. And let us not sin by letting anger control us. Let us not let the sun go down while we are still angry. And let us not give the devil a foothold. How do we do this? by putting on the belt of truth, by putting on Jesus. Now this morning, I just wanna take a moment in our closing times. I just wanna take a quick moment with every eye closed. If we can just close our eyes and keep our eyes closed and our head bowed.
I know the Holy Spirit is doing something in people's lives this morning. Maybe you've been living a lie. Maybe you've been living in hypocrisy, a false truth or a half truth. I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not God's design or desire for you. He wants you to live the victorious life that he has already purchased. All you have to do is accept it, turn from yourself, and turn towards him. And I believe the greatest thing we can do to honor the Lord's sacrifice this morning is to respond to that. So I want to ask you, if there's anybody in this place who has yet to understand or to put on Jesus, if you've yet to make a decision to follow after Christ, and this morning you want to do that, knowing that the enemy of your souls is a liar, and you want the victory that only comes from him, not by your doing, not by your fighting, but by Jesus. If your desire is for Jesus this morning to be the one who fights for you and gives you every weapon you need, if you're willing and ready to make that decision to follow after Jesus for the first time, I'm gonna ask that you would lift up your hand this morning so I know who to pray for. If you're willing to make that decision. Yes, Lord. Father, thank you so much for my brother and my sister that have made those decisions today. We just pray, Lord, that as they decide to follow after you, that you would give them their strength, that you would be their power. Father, that you would lead them and guide them into all truth, that this would be the beginning of what you have called them to accomplish for you, oh God. May you be their joy. May you be their satisfaction. May you be their everything. And Father, we now pray for everyone in this place, everyone under the sound of my voice who has come this morning. May you help us all, Lord, to daily walk in the truth of God, no longer bogged down by lies or frustrations, but individuals that have chosen to put on Jesus our belt of truth, our everything. He does not waver. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So Father, as we put on this first aspect of our armor, May you help us and lead us and guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Friends, can we give the Lord a hand this morning? Thank you, God. We praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is awesome. He has given us the victory. We are victorious in Christ. He has triumphed over death, sin, and darkness. And he is now leading us to walk in truth and to overcome any attack of the enemy with the defense that he's given us in Jesus. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Take care.